Welcome to the Connect Community Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. We're so glad to have you with us today. If you're ever in our area, come see us in person. We hope today's message inspires you and helps you live better. We started a series back in the beginning of July. It's our summer series titled, Is There More to Life? And we've been in this series for a few weeks now. We started, just to give you a short recap, with Solomon's words in the first couple chapters where he talked about how life without God is meaningless, how the things that we usually hold on to for our identity, for our purpose, things like wisdom, like work, like pleasure, these things are meaningless without God. And then the following week we talked about time, the importance of being able to read the time and get with the rhythms of time and the seasons of life. Because for everything, there is a season under the sun. And then we talked about the dark side of envy. Uh, we talked about the importance of keeping our hearts from envy. And then uh, fourth week, Dan DePaula shared an awesome message. Were you guys here for that? That was amazing. He shared a great message. It's on the podcast. I encourage you to listen if you haven't. Uh, and, and he talked about... Uh, working your lot, and he gave you three encouragements, three points on how to work your lot. And then last week, we took a break from the series, and we had our dear friend, Pastor Tom Lancaster. Uh, He was here from Switzerland with that awesome British accent, and he shared a great message on the theology of creativity. It was really captivating, and uh, that's also available on the podcast for you to listen to. So today, we're going to resume the series, And we're going to continue our our summer series, and I want to talk to you about the fear of God. Specifically, if you're taking notes, the title of the message is, The Fear of God Makes Me Better. The Fear of God Makes Me Better. And if you want to follow on our app, we have the filling in the blanks there. There's some good ones there for you today. For some time now, our society and, and our culture has been moving anxiously, has been moving hurriedly away from God, against the ways of God. And, and I think it's really out of a lack of understanding about our human makeup, how we were made and, and what we were made for. See, the idea of getting rid of God or getting rid of religion is based on this thought on the roots of the, 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 the idea that religion is made by a, by a group of people to restrict the masses from certain pleasures and to mold them after a particular set of behavior or a particular set of values that, it, that interests those leaders. And in many cases, it's implied that God and religion are devices used by people to manipulate and control others. Now, in all fairness, it has been done. It has been done by, by governments. It has been done by cults. It has been done by church leaders. But you have to pause and you have to think about why is it that the idea of God is so powerful, that the idea of God is so compelling to humans, to us? Why is it that we feel drawn to this idea of God? Why is religion so attractive to the human soul? See, what many people don't realize is whether you profess to believe in God or not, whether you, you believe in God or you, you say, no, I, I'm, I'm an atheist. Whether you're an atheist or an atheist, you are a religious person. 
And even if you think religion is something organized by a group of people to shape up a people, other people's minds, you're part of a religion. You subscribe to some kind of idea because the classical definition of religion has to do with a system of belief in God. I understand that. But a system of belief in God doesn't mean only a metaphysical God. It can mean some other form of God. Because the word religion in the Bible, in the scriptures, comes from the Greek word treskeia. I don't speak Greek, but it has a little tinge of Italian, my Greek, you know. Treskeia, you know. In fact, I think any language that I don't know how to speak sounds Italian. Because you do the little... Na, 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 na. Treskeia means worship. That's what it means. So by this definition, and to keep it simple and short, because we can talk about this for a long, long time, I think we can, we can identify in our culture three kinds of religion that we have today. One would be the religion of theistic religions. The theistic religions are religions of people who actually believe in a superior God, in a, in a metaphysical form of God. Second religion that we might not notice but exists in our culture is a religion to self. That's a religion where you worship some part of you, where, where the, the part of you, the self, is exalted to a place of, uh, uh, this place of worship and devotion. Your pleasures, your desires, your sexuality, your status, your sense of identity, you name it. And then the third religion is the religion of sin, which you might not classify it as that innately, but you can see it and notice in culture. The religion where you worship certain practices, certain behaviors that are not necessarily good for you. They're not necessarily good for your body. They may be destructive, but they bring a momentary pleasure. They bring momentary satisfaction. And so people engage in that. And the people that are leading these movements to drive people away from God, what I think they haven't realized is that you can try to get somebody to not believe in God. You can try to get a group of people to become atheists. You can try to move them away from worshiping this elusive metaphysical God up in the sky. But you can't keep people from worshiping. Because that's our nature. We will elevate something to that status. And so what happens is that if you move God away from your life, something else is going to occupy its place. And it's going to be either a religion of self or a religion of sin. One of those two things will happen. Because we are made to worship. And the problem with that is that there's something that worship does to you and me. See, worship uh, uh, transforms us. Each one of us, we become what we worship. Have you noticed that? People who worship money, they become greedy. People who worship promiscuity, they become promiscuous. People who worship fame, they will seek fame at all cost. Now, you might not like to use the I, the, the, the religious language, the idea of using religious language to classify some of these things. Because you might think it's just dedication, J.D., or, or it's just a life pursuit. It's not worship. 
But it's not just dedication, is it? It's not just a life pursuit because it, you can easily cross into that, that line of reverence, of devotion. And ultimately, what, what actually classifies worship, you cross the line into sacrifice. See, because every act of worship requires a sacrifice. That's the definition of worship. And here's where you discover, sooner or later, that when you remove God from the equation, sacrifices get weird. They get really strange. Think about some stories that you might have witnessed. Stories that you might have maybe experienced yourself or you have watched loved ones experience. Maybe stories that you read People were willing to sacrifice for power, what people were willing to sacrifice for money, what they were willing to sacrifice for success, for fame, what people were willing to sacrifice for promiscuity and their version of freedom. See, the first thing you'll notice is that the sacrifice, once you remove God from this, the, the picture, the sacrifice is not wholesome. The sacrifice is not holy. Usually what happens is when you remove God from the, scripture, the, 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 the picture, the sacrifice becomes ungodly, meaning what you're actually sacrificing are things like integrity, character. You're sacrificing relationships, healthy relationships. You're sacrificing, sacrificing your health, your reputation. You're sacrificing uh, your body even. And this is why. It's because godly worship requires you to sacrifice that part of you that is ungodly. But ungodly worship requires you to sacrifice the part of you that is godly. One requires the sacrifice of the other. And so the moment you remove God out of the picture, the things that we will be called upon to sacrifice are the things that God has placed in your life. And I don't know about you, but if I'm made to worship, if I am built and designed to worship, if I'm going to have a religion, if I'm going to pursue something that is going to shape me, that makes me want to worship something that is perfect, that is loving, that is graceful, that is generous, merciful, just. That makes me want to worship God. And so if my worship will require sacrifice, I'd rather practice the kind of worship or the kind of sacrifice that causes me to let go of what's ungodly in my life. To let go of the things that will keep me from, my, from the very best. I don't want to sacrifice my purpose. I don't want to sacrifice my virtues. I don't want to sacrifice the, the good things that God has breathed into my life. I want to sacrifice the things that are holding me back. I want to sacrifice sin. I want to sacrifice the things that are keeping me from God's very best. Listen to this scripture, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8. This is where we pick up from Ecclesiastes, the book we're studying this summer. 
As no one has the power, has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. And he continues, as no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness is not released, does not rele- will not release those who practice it. If something happens to your soul when you turn away from God. There's something that happens to, to, to your countenance. And, and what happens in our hearts when we practice what Ecclesiastes calls wickedness. We all know who somebody who has fallen into this trap. And maybe some of us here, we might have been in a situation or two where we have fallen into a trap like this. You know, you practice a vice. Don't raise your hand or elbow the person next to you. But you practice a vice that you think, I, I got this. It's under control. I have it. It's okay. And then you come into a situation where you realize, oh my goodness, it's not under my control at all. I've been overcome by it. And the spectrum of things that we can get involved in can go all the way from substance use, uh, whether it's licit or illicit substances, all the way to abstract things like anger, abstract things like, like manipulation or deceit or just a little lie to keep things at bay. Have you ever uh, been in a situation where you, you've seen people get caught in a web of deceit? like gossip or some family drama. If you were to trickle it back all the way to the beginning, it probably started with something small. A little wickedness, not a big wickedness, just a little bit. It was probably some, some, some little lie to, justified by, by the reason of protecting somebody's feelings. And then the person thought, ah, that worked. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to bend the truth so that I can get the result that I want. Oh, that worked again. Let me do it again. And it just becomes part of the strategy. And then all of a sudden, you're lost in it. Your credibility is gone. You, don't really, you can't really tell truth from lie anymore. The lines get fuzzy. You begin to retell stories. And, and even the stories you retell are not even accurate anymore. What happened? Wickedness got a hold of you or them because this never happened to you, right? Now that person feels trapped. They don't know what to do because they cannot control the outcome. Listen to this next verse as we continue chapter 8. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but I grew up in a culture where this is, this is very true. You know, I grew up in Brazil, and, and uh, the justice system is very slow. So if you punch somebody in the face, here in America, you might be in jail tonight, right? If, if you punch somebody in the face, the police can take you, and, and, and you, depends on the punch, right? But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, uh, I've never done it, by the way, okay? Never done it. Just going to get that clear. That's probably why I can talk about it with such levity. But <laughs> never punched, never been punched. Don't get any ideas, Dan. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
if you do that in, in at least 20 years ago where I grew up, if you did that, it might take months before you even see a judge because the courts are so backed up, because the system is so slow. So guess what happens? Lots of people get punched in the face. Yeah, that's what happens. And so you, you just have to fend for yourself. Why? Because where there's no justice, where there's no quick justice, people feel like they can do whatever they want. They feel like they can, they can break the rules. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying here. And then he continues, Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, because they feel like they can get away with it. I know, listen to this next part, I know that it will go better with those who fear God who are reverent before him. Notice that word reverence. That's a word that connected to worship. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like the shadow. What is this passage telling us? That even if the religion of self, even if the religion of sin looks attractive, even if you never get punished by your wickedness. In other words, even if you could do whatever you want and you got away with it. Even if you lied and there was no consequences. Even if you stole and there were no consequences. Even if you got hung up on substances and you never got sick. Your body never showed any collateral damage. Even if you got the power, the prestige, the influence, the success, the, the, the bad success, right? The bad kind of success. Because Scripture talks about good success. But even if you got that, that bad kind of success and, and, and the fame that's based on selfish ambition that you desire, even if you sacrifice the good in yourself until you became this weird, transformed person that's no longer who you were meant to be, full of all that junk in your heart, and you didn't see consequence, no apparent negative consequence, what, what the, 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 the scripture is saying is that it is still better to fear God than to live that way. It's still better to fear God than to get away with your wickedness. Because the fear of God, fearing God, what he says is, makes you better. It improves your life. The thing that improves your life is fearing God. Now I feel the, the need to explain what the, the term fear of God actually means because if you're not familiar with it or maybe you grew up in a tradition where the fear of God meant right like you know that that that, that sense of uh, just just terror of God because if you walk out of line God can just smite you right if you <laughs> you have to fear the Lord because a lightning bolt might come and just kill you dead right that's not the kind of fear of God the scripture is talking about it's not, it's not being afraid for your life. There is a kind of being terrified that doesn't mean you're afraid of your life, for your life, right? And that, so the scripture is not talking about that you got to fear God like you're afraid for your life. See, the fear of God is more about God than it is about you. In other words, it's not about like, ooh, i got to do what God wants me to do because otherwise he's going to punish me, he's going to hit me, he's going to, you know, smite me. It's more about as I contemplate God's greatness, as He reveals Himself to me, as I realize how big, how majestic He is, I'm in awe. 
I'm in awe of his greatness. It terrifies me. Not in a way that I'm afraid for my life. It terrifies me at how small I am compared to his greatness. At how little I am compared to how amazing he is. The fear of God yields humility. And the best illustration I have to, to show you how you, I experienced this physically is uh, I went down to Ground Zero in New York City. If you haven't been, you're late to the party. You got to go. You got to go. It's great. Go, go today if you can. It's, it's a great space. Uh, they put some awesome pools where the uh, Twin Towers were to honor those who, fall, who fell on that day, who lost their lives on 9-11. And, but right next to that memorial, there's a new tower, the Freedom Tower. And it stands super tall. And I remember the first time I saw it, I got as close as I could to it. And you can walk pretty much right up to it. And I got as close as I could to it where I could see the top. And I just, I just got close to it, and then I looked up. And the feeling in my gut, have you ever done that, you know, close to a really tall building? The feeling in my gut was like, whoa, this thing is big. I am so small. This is the feeling that I'm talking about. Like there's that kind of fear where, whoa, this thing is way bigger than I am. It's way more powerful than I am. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but some of you have. And the experience I hear again and again from people who have been to the Grand Canyon is very similar. It's like you get there and you see the vastness of that place and it puts life in perspective. That's what I heard the most feedback from people. It puts life in perspective. But really what they mean is it puts your life in perspective. It puts their life in perspective. How small you are in comparison to something so big. Even if your mom told you that you're big and strong, you realize you're not so big and strong. And that's what happens when a heart is surrendered to God. You realize God's greatness and you say, God, I surrender. I bow down because the fear of God yields humility. Next part of uh, chapter 8 says this, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting... No sleep, day or night. Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. If they, even, even, even if they say, I know exactly what's going on in the world, they don't know. They don't know. Here's something else that the fear of God does to us. Not only does the fear of God yield humility for our lives, but the fear of God causes us to have peace in trust. Because in every one of our lives, we'll, we'll, we'll go through seasons and situations where we, we won't, we're not going to get to know everything. You're not going to know everything. There are going to be many things in your life that you will never be able to figure out or to control. And for some of you, that's really, really hard. Because you like to have things in control. But there will be situations, people, relationships, 
seasons in your life where you're not going to be able to control it. It's going to be out of your understanding, beyond your ability to comprehend. And in those moments is where you got to fear God and understand that He is in control, that He has your life in the palm of His hands, that He is carrying you through because you have surrendered your life to Him. So you can have peace as you trust in Him. Now today we're going to have water baptism. I'm so excited. Because water baptism is a personal decision. It's a decision that a person makes. And some of you grew up in a tradition where you were baptized as a child. Now we don't call that baptism in our tradition. We call it dedication. When you're a baby and you are, and you are presented to God, we call that a dedication. Because, because baptism, which the word simply means to be immersed. It comes from the word baptizo, which means to be immersed in water. But the tradition of baptism has always been a decision. So it's not that it's wrong that you got baptized when you were a kid. But there is a baptism when you are a grown adult, when you're conscious of your sin, when you've become conscious of who you are, where you say, I'm going to fear the Lord. You make a decision to fear God as an adult. And we make that distinction. It's an important distinction. Because in the scripture, we have people that we see who are dedicated to the Lord. People like Samson, like Samuel, Moses, Isaac, Jesus. Those are children that were dedicated to the Lord. But baptism is a choice to turn away from wickedness, to turn away from our old life, to turn away from those things in our lives and to choose to fear God. It's a recognition that until you met Christ, you were living for the religion of sin. You were li living for the religion of self. You were dedicating your life to these things that were not adding to you. Your worship was on reverse. You were sacrificing the good in you to try to get to something uh, that was elusive. That was attractive only to your flesh but never satisfied you. And now you realize that in Christ... It's the opposite. It's the self that needs to die. It's sin that needs to die. And God has uh, what you need. And so, as you begin to live in, in, in the way of Jesus Christ, those of you who are getting baptized today, God revealed Himself to you and you became aware. You became aware of His greatness, of how amazing, how big He is, how awesome He is. And now... You want to make that decision to bury your life in the waters as a symbol of Christ's death so you will be buried with Christ and then to be raised to life again with Him. Um, listen to this scripture in Peter that ex explains baptism. It says, And this water and this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also. Not to the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. That's great. Yeah. But here, you can't really understand baptism until you understand the fear of God. You, that you, you come into God's presence and there is this sense of reverence. There's this sense of, of devotion. 
you know, the fear of God that yields humility. I know it's countercultural because our culture practices these, these religions that focus on self and, and sin. But I want to encourage you today to turn your life, all of us, and renew that sense of fear of God in us. To say, God, you have my heart. God, you have my will. You know, our culture says that your will is supreme. That whatever you think, that's supreme. That everybody just needs to approve and applaud and say, yay, you go, girl. <laughs> you go, guy. There's no one for men, right? No, the men. No. <laughs> All right. I don't even know what that's from. Should I be repeating that? I don't know. But that's not the way of Christ. That's why it's difficult for the world to understand because when you come to Christ, you realize, I want to be like Him. I want to be like God. And it's not a gender thing. It's not like, you know, I want to be, I want to have the features and the, and the thought and the attributes and the mindset of Christ. So I surrender everything, everything about me. All of my ways, all of my convictions, all of my sense of identity, everything goes to Him with no prejudice. Everything is His. And the world tries to synthesize that. But it always comes up short. In Christ, we have that. And it starts with fearing God. That means you elevate God, always. You know, you, you bring Him your questions, yes. You bring Him your doubts, yes. But there's a sense of fear of God that you're submitting your life to Him, that you want to become like Him. You see, and this is, you can see clearly that this type of relationship is not about religion. It's not about a top-down thing. It's not about you doing what your pastor wants you to do. It's not about you doing what the priest wants you to do or what the church wants you to do. It's about becoming like Christ. It's about unleashing and releasing the person that God designed you to be so that you can excel as a husband, you can excel as a wife, you can excel as a son, you can excel as a daughter, so that you can be the light of the world. You know, when you walk around empty and you just, you're looking for something to fill you. And I'm glad because many of you, you came to this place like that. And now it's when I need you, David, to make things spiritual. <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> you know, some of you, that's why you connected to a church like ours, or maybe how you con why you connected to this church. Because you're running on empty. You, you didn't have hope. Your faith tank was empty. Your life was depleted. And then... You came into a place like this and the presence of God began to fill you up. Maybe you connected to a connect group or you started hanging out with people of faith and, and little by little, your tank began to fill and began to fill and began to fill. What, what happens sometimes is that we're still in the mindset of just we need to get what we want. And so we get, we get filled up to a place that we feel like, all right, I think I can handle it again. I got this. And then we run away into the world with our half-filled tanks and it just gets drained again 
And then you feel like, I know what to do. I can go again and get filled again. And then you go out into the world and you fight. And you you have this spiritual yo-yo. You know, where you come into God's presence, get filled, go out, fight the battles, come back, get mended, you know, broken arm, limping. Lord, heal me That's not God's plan for you. He wants to give you a new self. So that you're not only going to get filled and filled and filled, you're going to overflow. So that out of your life, other people may get filled. That's right. So that when you go to work on Monday, on Tuesday, people are clinging to you. So that out of your life, there is life filling them. That's God's plan for you. And that only happens when we release ourselves to become like Him. The fear of God is an everyday choice. Everyday choice, choosing to fear Him. I'm going to close with this scripture in Romans. It's not, it's not on the screens because it came to me this morning. Here's what it says, Romans 16, uh, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Amen. Do you receive that this morning? Thank you for listening today. If you have a prayer request, a question about faith, or would like to find out more information, visit us at connectcommunity.org. Don't forget to subscribe and share. See you next time.